Thank you for that. My title for you is Watching What We Eat and Spend. Let me begin by saying this. There has been what Willem Van Gemmeren calls a progress of redemption. In God's plan and providence, he has unfolded revelation and his will progressively through history so that there are differences between the two covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant. Similarities, absolutely yes, but differences too. Some of those differences are found in the law, namely those parts that we see required and carefully observed in the Old Testament, but fulfilled in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. There's a magnificent difference between doing away with something and something no longer having the impact that it previously did because it's been satisfied and fulfilled. Jesus is not saying that he's tossed the law aside. Jesus is saying that in Christ, we fulfill the law because he did it perfectly. This is a message that will address today two primary topics found in Deuteronomy 14, which is found in the law. But in addition to that, I'd like to land ultimately where you and I live in the New Testament, where Jesus has fulfilled the law, but the apostles and prophets give us further instructions, being that that law has been fulfilled and satisfied on our behalf. Amen? So let's get started with our first of two points today, which is found in verses 1 through 21 of Deuteronomy 14. And that topic is first dietary instructions. Dietary instructions. Now, if you recall from our reading of chapter 14, you know that there's a couple of verses that address something first before the dietary instructions are addressed. So I do want to take a moment to say something on that issue, namely, these couple of verses that say cutting of one's body or shaving of one's head because of the death of someone is forbidden. Now, This is something that would seem odd to us, but even in New Guinea, in current times, if someone dies, people harm themselves in these cultures to the extent that, more often than not, it is women, when someone dies in their family, they will literally remove a knuckle from their hand. This sounds interesting to you and I, something that would never cross our mind, but it's something that is practiced in pagan cultures. And what God is saying in Deuteronomy chapter 14 is that you aren't to do those practices that pagan cultures do. In other words, there's to be a distinguishing marker between God's people and those who do not know God. Why? For three reasons. Three reasons for not participating in these pagan rituals. Number one, You are the sons and daughters of God, in verse 1. Number two, you are a people holy to God, in verse 2. And number three, the Lord has chosen you, again, in verse 2. These are the three reasons that God provides for not behaving the way that everyone else behaves. 
You are my sons and daughters. You are a people holy to me, and I have chosen you. I want you to focus on those three principles for a moment because if we didn't cover anything else in Deuteronomy chapter 14 today, but you live the rest of your life this week with these these three things in mind, I am a child of God, I am holy to him, and he has chosen me, I guarantee you that every decision and action that you perform would be affected. And in fact, these statements are emphatic in the original Hebrew as the Hebrew places the predicate at the front of the sentence so that it reads, sons, you are. Holy, you are. This is important because of what we can infer. Now get this. We don't act a certain way so that we can identify as someone. We act a certain way because we are someone. And that's something that as Christians, we should know better than anyone else. We think the way that we do and we act the way that we do because we are God's children. That's what God is calling us to understand. We are his sons and daughters. We are holy to him and we have been chosen One author says, clearly those who are Yahweh's children ought not to become involved in the practices of their pagan neighbors. I wonder how many of us are closely affiliated or involved with the rituals of our pagan neighbors. Now, moving on to these dietary instructions, there are a couple of things to note. First, Note the reason at the outset of this section. The same thing that is said for the pagan rituals in regards to cutting oneself or shaving one's head because of the death of someone, those same principles apply to the dietary instructions too. You are a people holy to the Lord, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. But when we read it again in verse 21 at the end of the dietary instructions, it acts as a sort of bookend for this idea. At verse 21 at the end it says, you are a people holy to the Lord. So we can't say that these three principles that should be a dictating factor for our behavior is strictly for funeral processions. It's not only for those rituals, it's for the way that we live our lives in general. We should be living the way that we are because we are his. Amen? We should be living the way that we are because we are his children. Amen? And perhaps as insulting as it is, we should be living the way that we are because we didn't choose him. He chose us. This is the complete point of this third principle. There's a lot of people out there, Moses says, But God chose you. You're here in my hearing today. You're present in my hearing today. And if you're in Christ, you chose him. But he chose you first. You can't wiggle out of that biblically. You can't wiggle out of that doctrinally. This is the magnificent doctrine of election. And it does not only bring to us an offense to our conscience, our will, as we think we are so tall and mighty and strong, but it also gives us this assurance. God has started a work on us, and he will finish it. 
And because he has started the work on us, if we fail, he will be faithful. If it did not begin with us, it will not finish with us. So as we begin these dietary instructions that Moses passes on to the people of God, he reminds them, you are his children, you are holy to him, which is to say you are special, unique, beloved, and finally you have been chosen. So now, secondly, let's look at the actual restrictions and permissions. Moses breaks these down according to two categories, the first of which is clean, and the second of which is unclean. And this can get a bit confusing, so I'm going to break it down for you very simply. The clean is eatable, the unclean is uneatable, and here is what constitutes a clean animal that can be eaten. Number one, it must part the hoof or have cloven hooves. Number one. And number two, it must chew the cud, which is a method of chewing already partly digested food. Cows do this. They have five stomachs. They regurgitate their food and chew the cud. Today, when we say it looks like you're chewing on something, that's the idea of meditation that's even used in the Bible. When the Bible talks about meditating on God's word, it borrows from the idea of chewing the cud, which is to say... Eastern religions talk about meditation, and what they mean is crisscross applesauce like candles and hum, but that's not biblical meditation. Biblical meditation is not trying to get our brains in a position of mental neutral, but on the contrary, biblical meditation means that you are thinking, you are pondering, you are mulling over, you are chewing the cud of God's word. Now, the Bible says you may eat these animals in verse 6. The ones that fit this criteria, the ones that have the cloven hooves and chew the cud. Verses 6 through 8, if you'll look at it, is the clearest part of instruction. I think it says every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cud. It's a twofold category in that regard. Among the animals you may eat, yet of those that chew the cud or... Have the hoof cloven, you shall not eat these. The camel, the hare, the rock badger. Because they chew the cud, but they do not part the hoof. Or they are therefore unclean for you. Verse 8, and the pig. Because it parts the hoof, but it does not chew the cud. Is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. And similarly, when it comes to sea life. When it comes to sea life, verse 9 tells us, whatever has fish, uh, sorry, whatever fish has fins and scales, you may eat, which is why shrimp is not kosher. You cannot eat those because they don't have fins or scales. This is the place where that law and practice began. And finally, bird life. It's more general. But bird life has guidelines as well. They can eat birds, but it's a lot more straightforward. In regards to that, it seems like what is prohibited are mainly birds of prey and vultures, which probably has something to do with hygiene. The section ends with a couple more guidelines. And the first part of the guidelines has to do with whatever dies naturally. 
If something is found that has died naturally, they are not to eat that animal. And, and I think God's law sometimes seems incredibly restrictive, but I also think that in ancient times, his law had health benefits that other areas of the world were not practicing. It is known, for example, to be a practice in ancient Egypt for a wound to be covered in things like cow dung. Now today, that would be like, why would you put dung on a wound? But in ancient times, animals were sacred. To this day in India, there are people who are starving that will not eat animals because the animals, according to Hinduism, are a reincarnated somebody, and therefore they don't eat the animals. They're starving, and there's cows everywhere. Now, they have dietary restrictions of their own. But their dietary restrictions are based upon reincarnation and the belief that that animal is someone who has lived previous lives. Now, I bring all of this to your attention to say this. What you believe matters. And everybody says all beliefs are the same. It all, nothing, the only thing that really matters is that you have a belief and that you believe it sincerely. And that is absolutely not the case. But what I bring to your attention this morning in this case is the fact that what we read today and what we find like, oh, that's a little inconvenient, I really like bacon, is this. I believe that God was not only teaching his people the importance of holiness and strict living, but I also think that his law was protecting them from infections and from sicknesses that in ancient times were probably far more common than they are in modern times. So, we read, if you come across a dead animal, you're not to eat it. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, they don't know how long that animal's been dead. There can be bacteria growing in that animal. But also, if they come across a dead animal, they aren't to eat it because God had very strict instructions when it came to killing, cooking, and consuming an animal. And part of that process included draining all of the blood. If they killed an animal, they had to kill it a specific way. Animals weren't to suffer. They were to die quickly. And after they did that, they were to drain all the blood from the animal. The scripture tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 12 that life is in the blood and that an animal was to be dead and that their blood was to be drained before they were to be consumed and they were to be cooked completely that is to say well done now to us we're like i like my steak medium or medium rare but remember religiously speaking god is instilling in his people discipline but hygienically speaking god is protecting his people from bacteria Second thing that we see at the conclusion of this paragraph is this teaching. You are not to boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Which sounds like a peculiar practice, doesn't it? But it's quite common in ancient times, and it was considered a sort of delicacy. In nomadic tribes in Palestine, according to one source, and, and this is probably why today Orthodox Jews 
do not use the same utensils for dairy as they do meat. In regards to this principle, it is the separation of, in their mind, life and death. And therefore, they have very strict laws when it comes to even how they run a kitchen. But this isn't the only set of instructions that are given to us. Further instructions are given to us in Deuteronomy chapter 14, and they have to do with tithing. So let me take you to this next section, tithing. And then after I address this section, I'll bring you to the New Testament, and we'll look at a couple of texts there and see how the New Testament addresses these issues to Christians. So beginning at verse 2, we look at tithing, and there are a couple of things that we can note. Let me just read a couple of verses to you to wet our palate again. You shall tithe how much of the yield? All the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year, and before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain and of your wine and of your oil and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God, how often? Always. And if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe, when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money. This is an exchange. Bind up the money in your hand. Go to the place that the Lord chooses and spend the money on whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. So a couple of things to note here under this idea of tithing instructions in verses 22 through 29. First, Note that the tithe isn't optional, it's commanded. Number one, note that the tithe isn't optional, it's commanded. The people of God are to bring into the congregation the tithe, which is a word that literally means tenth of their earnings. Here it says in verse 22, all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year after year. In other words, church, say amen if you're listening. God is not asking his people to do this. He's commanding his people to do this. He's commanding his people to contribute to the congregation at large a 10% offering of everything that their field brings forth. But there's more. Second, I want you to note that the tithe serves a communal purpose. The tithe serves a communal purpose. The text is rather straightforward. I think you can probably ascertain what's being said here as we've read it aloud together. The people haven't really settled yet. Right? They've crossed the Jordan, they've, they've left Egypt, gone through the wilderness, they've crossed the Jordan, and they're in the promised land, but they haven't really settled yet. The process is still unfolding, and God is saying, I may lead you to another place, a place that I've chosen, and as I'm leading you there, the tithe is to come, but the tithe is also part of what is keeping the community running. You see that? It's incurring costs. There's a demand 
on individuals and families and the community at large to keep things going as they are. And the Lord is telling them, continue to bring forth 10% of all your yield and the community will live off of this and complete the vision, God says, that I give to the community. This is an important point. In the event that something happens or the people of God are commanded to relocate or go to a place that the Lord has chosen to place his name, their instructions are clear. You can't take your tithe that far. So sell your tithe, get the cash in hand, relocate, and then live off of it in that way. Look at verses 25 and 26, if you would, please. Then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. Now, I want you to get this, guys. There's a lot of description here from God to Moses to the people. And I I think it's important that we pause here and appreciate what's being said. These people have gotten to the promised land, and although they haven't settled yet, God is blessing them differently than he did years ago, a generation ago. A generation ago, they left Egypt, and they went into the wilderness. And because they weren't faithful and obedient to God, the generation passed away, and the next generation inherited the land, right? There was a 40-year gap there. You remember that from when we started Deuteronomy? Now, it's different. Verses 25 and 26 are not promising manna and water from a rock. Think about it. We read through this, and I think that we probably go, okay, these instructions are getting a little laborious. But the truth of the matter is, is they're saying something that if we're not careful, we'll miss. God's blessing to his people, as they are obedient to giving, is not reflected in something as simple as manna, or something as simple as spring water. God is saying, when you get to the place that I tell you to go to, and you've got your money in hand, you can spend it on whatever you desire. And he goes on and he gives a description. Oxen, sheep, or wine, or strong drink, whatever your appetite desires. I think as good law-abiding Baptists, we read this and we go, that doesn't sound like the God that my grandfather told me about. That's because there's a very good possibility that the God your grandfather told you about is not the God of the Bible. Friends, moderation is taught in the Bible. Drunkenness is a sin in the Bible. But they drank in the Bible. Get over it. If you have a view of teetotalism, then please hold to that view with both hands and all your heart and all your head. I'm not judging you if you drink or if you don't drink. What I'm telling you is you will not find a verse in the Bible that says, do not drink. You will find verses that say, drunkenness is a sin. There is an expectation on the people of God, by God, that they are self-controlled, that they are sober-minded, and that they live within the boundaries that God has prescribed for them. Scripturally speaking, therefore, if you can drink a couple glasses of wine and operate within the will of God, 
That's not a sin. But if you can't, then you're sinning if you do. That's not between your church leadership. That's not between your family. That's between you and your God. In our church paperwork, it says very clearly, drunkenness is a sin. But we have to be honest with ourselves when we read verses like this and not have the gall or the audacity to say what he means by wine and strong drink is not that. But what he means by oxen is oxen. That's not the way it works, church. We have to take everything at face value. Now, that doesn't mean that we can throw off responsibility, accountability, and testimony. These things are important. And when we get to the New Testament, I think we're going to see how important those things actually are when it comes to topics like this. For the time being, what I want you to note is this. God is not giving them manna and water from a rock. That season has passed. Now they're facing a completely different season and a completely different blessing if, say if, if they're obedient. Friends, don't doubt God or lose faith and hope because the blessings in this season don't look like the blessings of another season. Let me say that again. Don't doubt God or lose hope and faith because the blessings of this season don't resemble the blessings of another season. Let me put it another way. If the blessings of this season that you're in are tremendous, that doesn't necessarily mean that God's blessings in the next season will be the same. God blesses us differently in different seasons for different reasons, and his will will always be fulfilled. My question for you, and I believe God's question for his people in this context is, not whether or not he's capable of blessing them richly, but whether or not they will be obedient. Now, I'm not saying be obedient so that God can be gracious. Those two things do not equate. God is always gracious, amen? God is gracious. We are Christians because God is gracious, not because we're good. But it would be foolishness to say that someone who is obedient is not disposed better toward God's blessings than those who are disobedient. That would be nonsensical. Someone who is disobedient to God is not better disposed to God's blessing than someone who is obedient. If you want to be disposed to God's blessings, then you should be obedient. This is not rocket science. I'm not teaching legalism either, by the way. I'm talking about walking in the footsteps of our Lord, who did so with righteousness and goodness and love. And if we live that way, if we behave that way, if we think that way, then we are disposed toward God's blessings, whereas if we don't, we are not. doesn't matter what kind of blessing God is placing on you in this season of your life. When I read Deuteronomy 14, 25, and 26, you know what I read? And I'm not teaching prosperity gospel here, so let me just put that as a caveat. But I'm reading what Proverbs teaches. 
When the Lord blesses, he blesses richly, and he does not add sorrow to it. Some of you don't believe that. Some of you believe that if you aren't living the hardest life imaginable, you're not godly. And that's ascetism. That's not Christianity. Jesus says, I've taken the nails. I've taken the spear. My body was broken and my blood was shed. And when I bless you, I can bless you richly. Now, that doesn't mean God blesses everyone richly, but what that does mean is that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He put the stars where they are and he names them. We had enough trouble coming up with Hannah and Sarah. But God names the billion stars in our galaxy, and we are one galaxy of a billion. The fact of the matter is, is God is infinite, and his understanding is beyond our comprehension. And we play him down as small when we think that this much of a blessing is all he can offer. The reality of the matter is, is sometimes we forfeit the blessings that God can place upon us because our faith is terrible. What God is telling his people is give tithe. It's a command. It's not an option. And it's communal in nature. Everybody does it together. And when I give you the name of a place I want you to go to worship me and to celebrate me there, if you can't make it with the tithe, exchange it for cash. And everyone, when they get there, gets what their heart desires. Did you get that? Whatever you want. Whatever you want. Friends, have you prayed to God for whatever you want? If it isn't in God's will, pray about it. He'll tell you. If you're in a situation where your debt outweighs your annual income and you are going, God, what what can I do about this? He will provide you options, whether it's a second hustle or a better job with a better annual salary because the debtor is slave to the lender and God wants his people free. That's a biblical principle. That's not a name it and claim it prosperity theology. That's false gospel. We don't teach that, but we do teach biblical truth, which is this. God wants his people out of debt and free. But what we see so often is this. We read Deuteronomy. We're under the stress of the financial Demand of living in one of the top five most expensive cities in the United States of America. And we go, I'll tithe when I get to it. And the reality of the matter is, what we're reading here is sort of a twofold category for us. What we read in Deuteronomy chapter 14 is that the tithe operated as both savings and giving. And, and, and we do that a little differently. And 2023, in the Western Hemisphere, things are different than they were then. We don't live under a theocracy. God is not our king speaking his law to us through his prophets like Moses. We're reading his word. We're on the other side of the cross, and we're living accordingly. And what that looks like for you and me today is a little different because we have a savings account, and then we have the obligation and responsibility to give to God. We'll call it savings and giving. 
The reality is we should save to make sure that our personal finances allow us some future security for an event that might come up. But we should also give to God as communal members of God's people who are on mission together and who love him and worship him because, say amen if you're listening, giving is part of worship. Period. Giving is part of worship. And I understand that we're all in different situations financially. This is not me giving this teaching to one particular financial situation and not another. We're all in different situations. That's not the point. We all are commanded to give. What I tragically see so often among God's people is that they spend a lot, save a little, and give God whatever is left over. And friends, we should earn as much money as we can, give as much money as we can, and save as much money as we can. Because this is the principle that is shown to us in the scriptures from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And we can trust God through the process. I love what Psalm 37 says. I have been young and now I am old, but I have never seen the righteous forsaken or begging for bread. Friends, if you trust God with his commanded process, say amen, he will bless you. He will bless you. It might not be the kind of blessing you were anticipating. It might be greater. It might be less. It might be in a year. It will be according to his plan, and you will receive the benefits of knowing that you are walking in the will of God and doing what he's called you to do. A couple of things I want to share with you. Proverbs chapter 3 and Malachi chapter 3. Scriptures say this. Chapter 3 of Proverbs, verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then, let me start this over so that we get this. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. What's the next word? Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with grape juice. I know, I aggravate half of you when I do this. But it doesn't say grape juice. Guess what it says? Wine, because God blesses richly. That's the point. If you choose not to imbibe, then that's fine. Don't, that's fine. But that's not what it says. So let's not make it say something that it doesn't say. Your vats will be bursting with wine. It's a celebratory thing. It's a riches thing. But God is not going to do that beforehand. He does it after they bring the gifts. Then your barns will be full and your vats will be bursting. Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby, listen, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. 
If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed because you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Those are pretty clear scriptures in addition to Deuteronomy chapter 14 that don't allow us to put the cart before the horse. If we are obedient, God will give us rich blessings. If we are obedient, God will give us rich blessings. How he chooses to do that is entirely up to him. And although we are not under the law today, as we are in the new covenant and not the old covenant, the principles of the Old Testament are still applicable today. We don't reverse the order of these things and say, God, if you do this for me, I'll quit smoking. There's giggles because you guys have done this. If you do this for me, God, I'll stop cursing. God, if you do this for me, I'll start going to church. God, if you do this for me, I promise you fill in the blank. God is under no obligation to answer anyone in that regard. God, in this case, is speaking to his people. And he's speaking to his people in a form of a challenge. And he's saying, put me to a test on this issue and see if I don't bless you incredibly if you do what I told you to do years ago. And that's what he's telling us today, church. He's saying, I'm not, I'm not going to be twisted. I'm not going to be manipulated to do something that you should have been doing for years. I've already revealed my word to you. You should be walking in my word, in which case you will be disposed to my blessing. And when God blesses, God blesses richly. Now, I want to turn a corner and address a couple of things. Two topics from the New Testament perspective. And keeping it simple, we're going to look at Acts chapter 10 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So, in your Bibles, jump forward, if you would, please, to Acts chapter 10. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter 10, where we see a situation relayed to us that involved the apostle Peter. When you're there, let me know by saying amen. If you'll read with your eyes as I read aloud, we're going to begin with verse 9. The scriptures say, The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop. He's sitting on top of the roof of the house about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. 
And there came a voice saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or what? Unclean. Two things I want you to note immediately. The vision is being given to Peter by Jesus. That's the first thing I want you to notice. The second thing that I want you to notice is that Jesus is telling Peter to have a barbecue and include ribs. And Peter said, I've never had ribs in my life. By no means, Lord, I won't eat anything that's unclean. He's been obedient to Deuteronomy chapter 14 as a good Jew. And the voice came to heaven again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened how many times? Three times, because Peter, you know. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. There is a man, a Roman, who is a God-fearing man, which means he's not a Christian, but he's not a pagan. He's pursuing the Jewish principles of faith. He's not worshiping multitude of gods. He's only pursuing the worship of Yahweh. But he's not a Christian, and you don't become a Christian because you're a good person and only believe in one God. You become a Christian by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. And God never supersedes his program. And because God chooses his people, Deuteronomy 14 and does not supersede his own program in order for Cornelius to become a Christian, he must hear and believe the gospel. You following me so far? God, as he often does, is going to teach two people a lesson simultaneously in one episode. Peter, he's sending to Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile, just a God-fearer. He is not a Jew. Peter is a Jew of Jews. And he has a prejudice issue that Jesus is going to work out of him in view of the fact that Jesus fulfilled, didn't, didn't abolish, but fulfilled the law. He could have sent anybody to Cornelius, but he didn't. He sent Peter. He could have motivated, led by the Spirit, anyone to go to Cornelius, but he didn't. He used Peter. Why? Because he wanted Peter to learn something. Not only has he fulfilled the law, and therefore those differentiating factors are no longer in practice, but Gentiles and Jews are equal citizens of the church. Two things being done here. The laws are no longer binding on the people of God. And two, they are no longer barriers between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, what we learn as the church develops is that some of the Jews don't want to eat a ham and cheese sandwich and the Gentiles are like, you've never had a ham and cheese sandwich, you have to try this. 
And, and the Jews say, I'll never eat ham and cheese. And then the Gentiles go, that's so stupid. And the Jews go, you should not eat pig. And the Gentiles go, you should eat pig. And they go back and forth, back and forth. And Paul says, if they want to eat, let them eat. And if they don't want to eat, they don't have to eat. In Romans chapter 14, verse 8, he says, let everyone be fully convinced in their own mind. Because anything that is done, not of faith, is sin. In other words, if you're eating a ham and cheese sandwich and your conscience is just riveted, you should not be eating a ham and cheese sandwich. But if you're not eating a ham and cheese sandwich and it didn't bother you before, but now somebody has come along and said, you eat a ham and cheese sandwich? You're not a very serious Christian. Now you have an issue. The reality of the matter is, Paul says this, if we don't eat, we're not better. If we do eat, we're not better. The reality of the matter is this law is not binding on us anymore, but how we live out our faith does exemplify what it is we truly believe. So if let's say somebody is grown up and raised in Orthodox Judaism and God reaches into their soul and sends someone like, they, like he did Peter to Cornelius to say, if you believe in the Lord Jesus, you'll be saved and they become a Christian. If they want to continue observing those dietary laws, that's their choice, but it will not make them more saved. And if I do not observe the dietary laws, it does not make me less saved because we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. So if you choose a dietary mode that is prescribed in the Old Testament, even though we're on this side of the cross in the New Testament, that's your prerogative, but you can't judge the people that don't. And if you don't, you can't judge the people that do. Remember what Paul said, let everyone be fully convinced in their own mind. That's the New Testament perspective. So today we're going to have ribs. No, I'm just kidding. The second thing that I want you to note now that we're in the New Testament is our second topic, which is tithing. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, there's a short paragraph that I want to read to you. It's verses 6 through 8. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 8. Say amen when you're there. You can read with your eyes as I read aloud. This is what Paul says to the church at Corinth. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided where? In his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion because God loves what kind of giver? A cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Church, a couple of things I want you to note here. This is a beautiful passage of Scripture, and, and I hope you'll familiarize yourself with it further. But, but 
But what I want you to note here is while we are taught a teaching of tithing in the Old Testament, and just incidentally, uh, by the time the sacrificial system is done throughout the year, the people of Israel were actually contributing much more than 10%. Tithe was just a standard of giving. Although that is in the Old Testament, we don't see the tithe in the New Testament. There is no verse that says, continue the tithe. Uh, and in fact, in, 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 in uh, Matthew chapter 23, Jesus speaks very emphatically that the Pharisees work very hard to tithe, but they have no love. The reality of the matter is, and I'm going to say this clearly and simply, say amen if you're listening, tithing is a model that we follow. Tithing is a model that we follow, but... God does not own 10% of your life. God owns how much of your life? 100%. So some of us give 10% and we go, I tithe. Yeah, what about the 90? Because the reality of the matter is, is some of us are in different financial situations than other people. And Jesus speaks emphatically about this point in the Gospel of Luke when he says, some people give out of their riches and other people give a penny out of their poverty. Who gave the most? And the disciples asked, and Jesus says, the woman who gave the penny. We have to understand that giving for you might not be the same for me, and giving for me might not be the same for you. But what Paul is saying is that giving should be sacrificial. It doesn't matter if it's 10% or 80% or 25%. In this year, you might be able to give significantly more than you've given in other times in your life. But you should give all the time and as much as you can because God owns you. All of you, not 10% of you, all of you. And everything that we have, we have by his grace. And everything that we have, we have by his provision. And we can never outgive God. So Paul says, he is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You know what Paul's saying? Work hard and give plenty because God will provide everything you need. Now, of course, we're not talking about irresponsibility. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, if a man doesn't take care of his family, he's worse than an infidel. Book of Proverbs says, a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. You have to work on the things that God has placed in your responsibility. However, you do not tell God to hold off because of the blessings he's given you. Let me say that again. You do not tell God to hold off because of the blessings that he's given you. Every season is different for everyone. Someone's sacrifice might not resemble someone else's sacrifice. There are times of ebb and there are times of flow. My question for you is not, do you give? My question is, why don't you give more? Whatever more is. And by the way, I have no idea who gives or doesn't give. There are deacons who take care of that. I ask, what's the general number? But the reality of the matter is, 
in a church our size, the communal offering should position and posture us to accomplish anything that we want to. And in large part, we have. We have spent a good amount of money in the last few years because of your giving and because of our planning we have been able to meet the needs of our campus and different mission commitments that we have. I have a friend whose church is here in North Miami, and they are, well, they've been a healthy church for a long, long time, but they had to sell their building because they could not afford the maintenance on the building. As someone who has been busy at work every single day, last month was my fourth year anniversary. For the four years that I've been here, I can tell you the cost of labor and the cost of material are not getting cheaper. Every time we repair something, every time we fix something, every time we replace something, it costs us significantly. But by God's grace and by your faithfulness, we've been able to do this. And I pray, God, give me wisdom, help me decide where to put what foot and when in the direction that you want us to go. But this much is absolutely non-negotiable. If you would be a part of our family, you must give. I don't care what you get. That's between you and God. But you must give. Now, if you're someone that comes and you're non-committal, you're here, but you're not a member of our church, I'm going to be honest with you, you should give. But I'm going to be honest with you a little more. You're not my family yet. And I don't mean that in an ugly way. The people who are here who have signed the membership covenant have had a very stern conversation with me over the membership class. And we talk about mutual respect, mutual prayer, mutual giving. That is part of our membership conversation. And I say there, just like I do here, I have no idea what you give or how often you give, but I will challenge you to give. Because as often as you come and receive blessings, God has an expectation. Paul says, what is the big deal if I reap material things from you after I have sown spiritual things? We can accomplish great things together. And as a community of believers here at Cutler Ridge, we are making a commitment to each other to give, to give regularly, and not to put God to the test per se, but to believe that whatever we do, God can outdo. Amen? And bless us richly. To close, let me say this. I'm grateful for the gospel because the gospel teaches us that Jesus, on our behalf, has fulfilled and satisfied all requirements of the law that we could never fulfill. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. If you've never memorized a verse, this might be a verse you need to memorize. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, the apostle Paul says, or you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. <laughs>